The 100% Wild Podcast is brought to you by Onyx Hunt, the nation's number one GPS hunting app. Download today in the Google Play and App Store. What's up, guys, and welcome back to another edition of the Dury Outdoors 100% Wild Podcast. I am Tim Chelswick. I'm Matt Dury. And we've got a special guest. Is he that special? Because he's here and a guest a lot. In the off season, so he's just a co-host. He's just here. <laughs> I actually made it in today. Check it out. Well, and, and I was out. It a helps lot. our view count. It, it really did. Anytime Mark Dury's in the title, for some reason the views and listens tend to it. go up. It's weird. <laughs> so it feels nice to be back. I was out quite a bit last week, sicky with a coronavirus. So, but I'm I'm good now. So. Or am I? <laughs> we'll never know unless you die. I got bronchitis. Like yeah. every year, I'm good for one bout, and last week was my bout. And not the done. truth. Luckily, Bad. I was stuck in a truck with him for six hours when he got it. <laughs> Me yeah. and Scott. Yeah. You guys didn't get it. Mm-mm, so far unscathed. Thank goodness. It's just the cross I bear every year. Yeah, it sucks. Yeah. So I had it for my birthday, had it for Valentine's Day, oh. and... uh yeah, Tim had scheduled a vacation day for Valentine's Day while he was sick. <laughs> Still going to dock him for that day, though. <laughs> maybe maybe a day and a half, too. <laughs> so you were at NWTF over the weekend. How was the national convention down there in Nashville? Awesome. Anytime yeah. you go to the Mid-South, it's a good thing. The hunters are in big numbers. They are passionate. They love to turkey hunt. And most importantly, they love to deer hunt. You know, we're down there for Turkey Federation, but all the questions and all the, the things mm-hmm. I talked about were deer hunting. So yeah. it's uh, it's always great down in Nashville. Always. It was amazing electricity and energy in the room. Yeah. And I saw that uh, our buddy Paul Butsky got inducted into the Hall of Fame down there. He did. It was an amazing ceremony. It was Paul Butsky, Denny Gulvis, Harold and David, Ronnie Jolly, Denny Gulvis. I mean, it was Walter it was Parrott. Walter right? Parrott. Yeah. Walter was was ill and was unable to attend, but it was a fantastic ceremony. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And and uh, Dick Kirby as well. Oh, yeah, sure. So, I mean, that's one of those deals where that's the th- those. If you had a pillar of of turkey callers, right? Those oh, are there. Holy Grail, man! I mean, just sitting there seeing all my heroes was amazing, and seeing Chris accept on behalf of his dad, it was very mm-hmm. emotional. Yeah. yeah, very emotional. Very cool. So anything else that was news and are noteworthy from the NWTF? No, not not in particular. I had a lot of people talking about DeerCast, specifically DeerCast Track, which, okay. uh, you know, is the first consumer show we've worked. True. And uh, the feedback was quite good about DeerCast Track. Awesome. People using it and loving it and how accurate it was. And uh, that was really good, good feel to, to hear those things. That's cool. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, NWTF is is mind-boggling just how many people it's move packed. through there. I mean, it's a big that convention center there at the Gaylord is massive, but then just the number of people that come through. Yeah. It, it is the perfect venue for that too because mm-hmm. you know, we do these trade shows, so that's a consumer show, but we've, you know, we've done plenty of consumer shows through the years as well, but having everybody under one roof and I mean, it's just a different vibe. It's a fun, it's a fun show. Nashville is a fun town in general. Perfect venue, perfect location. You yeah. get to talk to a lot of passionate deer hunters, yeah. which is, which is really cool. It's like the heart of country music. And then you get the heart of the hunting world. Right really there. do. It's yeah. Perfect. Really do. Cause you pull the South, you pull the Midwest, you pull the mid South. I mean, see a lot of people from a lot mm-hmm. of places. Yeah. It's cool. Very good. We're kind of taking a walk down memory lane in this episode of the show. We one of our listeners uh, wanted to wanted to hear some of the good old stories from the good old days from Mark and some of the, you know, what it was like filming those old uh, those old VHS and DVD 
uh, features. So we'll get into that in a, in a minute here, but it's just crazy to think that you live long enough and all of a sudden you have good old days. <laughs> well, we were just <laughs> saying that off camera here that can you believe, you know, 15 years ago is half our company's history ago. I know. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. It's kind of scary to hear yeah. that <laughs> I've, and think that. Yeah. So the company, this is our 31st year. I've been here, six, I think this is my 16th year. According to LinkedIn, that's true. Okay. So, you know, but it doesn't feel like that. You, you know what I mean? When I got here, I felt like the company had been around forever because it was literally my entire life growing right. up, right. being around it. You yeah. know, I'm sure for you and Terry, it feels like two lifetimes or maybe three for Terry. <laughs> it does. But when you get old enough, you start forgetting. It feels like it's <laughs> new every day. So there's a, there's a actual, a silver lining to aging. So <laughs> there you go. Meet new people for, all, the all the time. Yeah. For Terry, hey, buddy. I was going to say it's every day is new. <laughs> you can't remember the so previous it's, one. It's coming. Yeah. How do you handle that, Mark? Cause I imagine you have to have a lot of people that have maybe shook your hand at a show or something oh, it, and, and maybe they expect that you remember them. How do you, I, I had a gentleman walk up to me and, and it, he said, I was in, I was there in Natchez, Mississippi in 1989. Jeez. And I talked to you, you know, this was a calling contest back in the day, which was the calling contest where I met Toxie, right? Well, of course uh -huh. I remember Toxie. I, I didn't remember this gentleman, but to your point, I get that a lot, you know, cause I used to do a lot of seminars. So they feel like, you know, they have this connection to you, but you just can't remember all of them. Yeah. I remember many, but you can't remember all of them, you know? Sure. Yeah. So I'd say, hey, buddy, hey, how you doing? <laughs> but that's, well, that is the neat part about it, honestly, getting to meet people. And I, when, when I go to these shows, I tend to meet people. I met Mark. I met Terry at this show back in, you know, you know, mm -hmm. 20 years ago or 30 years ago. So it's interesting to it, not relive it through for myself, but you get to meet some of the people that these guys had, had met 15, 20 years ago. And it's it was pretty, important to them because yeah, they remember yeah, it and they, yeah. they feel compelled. And it's always that seminar. It was Mark, Mark did a seminar. I met Terry at a gas station or, a, you know, I met two people that met Terry at a gas station in <laughs> Kentucky. And I was like, I don't recall Terry being in Kentucky on the road. And he said, he swore he met him in Kentucky at a Wendy's this past fall. And I'm like, oh, Terry that, wasn't in Kentucky. <laughs> no, but the Wendy's might've been right. <laughs> I, I'm like, they had to have been in a different state or something. Yeah. He was fairly Illinois convinced. would be yeah. more likely. Correct. You yeah, know, so. yesterday at the gym, I walked past a guy who was on a cycling machine who could have been Ronnie Dunn from Brooks and Dunn. Well, did you ask him? It was, it was just down the street here and he probably wasn't, but he <laughs> looked like the spinning image of Ronnie well, Dunn. Well, maybe Me Terry's got a double somewhere in Kentucky. <laughs> Terry, you know, like Wendy's, yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, the question of the day today is brought to you by Sportsman's Channel, your home for everything red, wild, and blue, and the new home of Winchester and Drury's Natural Born. I hope you guys are watching that because it's been a heck of a season. Man, it's so good. Far. I like it's it. Good. Hi, my name is Jim Green, and I'm from Bath, Pennsylvania. Recently, I've been watching a lot of uh, older videos on the DeerCast app, such as Monster Bucks 1, 2, and 3, and Bow Madness 1 and 2, which are my favorite. Would Mark and Terry be willing to do a podcast and talk about some specific hunts from those early videos and talk about the equipment used back then, the tactics, uh, location, and generally what they were thinking uh, as far as tactics back then and compare those variables with today's variables? I'm sure there are some cool stories about these old hunts that us listeners never knew about. Thank you very much. 
Thanks, Jim, for well, asking the question. This one's all on you, big boy. Boy, that's <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot, a lot of ground there. But he's he's right, you know. And as I think back to those early days when we first did deer videos, you're talking about 1990 through about 96 or seven. There's the mm-hmm. the period that he's he's referring to. And most importantly about that, if you contrast the way we hunted then with the way we hunt now, it's it's drastically different. Yeah. I mean, we were in the cover, in the bedroom, well, we catch, in a tree. We catch some heck for that. Right. And that may be where he's coming at from. He said it diplomatically, but he, he probably yeah. enjoyed those hunts. Yeah. Of, the timber of, hunts, the rut hunts. Everybody yeah. loves timber in the rut. Yeah. And we still do some of that. But the fact of the matter is we're much more successful on the deer that we're targeting early season, late season, the two sides of when he's talking about over a food plot out of a blind, you yeah. know. The footage but seems to be a little better too. When footage is better. <laughs> these older hunts, you see the focus the, the come in and out. Footage on. back then, I mean, part of it's equipment, but, you know, it just, timber hunts are hard to capture very well anyways on camera because you just, a lot of times, especially during the rut, they come out of nowhere, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, oh, they're behind me. Oh, you know, and you're always tied up. When he said that, first thing I thought of was those camera arms that you guys developed back then. We did. Yeah. Yeah. We were the first ones to develop a camera arm. They were incredibly heavy. Yeah. And uh, we'd have to hoist them up every single day, attach them to the tree. They were loud, Jeez. noisy. And, uh, you know, I remember days with Stoltz looking at each other and, you know, if looks could kill, because he was always noisy, putting it in the tree and clank, <laughs> clank, up, clank, clank, clank. And I'm like, oh my goodness gracious, <laughs> driving me crazy. And that's back when Terry and I filmed with each other as well. Huh. So speaking of kill each other, (laughs) exactly. Right. You know, Um, but those memories are very fond. And I think the most stark difference is we didn't know then what we know now, Mm -hmm. you know, and that was the, the start of our imprint into learning about mature buck activity and habits and tendencies. And a lot of what we learned back then really leads us into today's world and version of jury outdoors in the way we hunt and deer cast the algorithm. Those were the early days of us learning because we made so many mistakes and we, we were constantly wondering why are the deer moving today? And then tomorrow they don't, it's like, shouldn't they all be equal? Shouldn't they like us get up and move around every single day? And they just didn't. And that's when the, the start of trying to figure out why they moved really happened for Terry and I, because we couldn't figure it out. And it took us, you know, really decades to figure that out. Uh, and that's, that's why we did deer, deer cast. So. And you think about doing that with the equipment that you were using at the time, which was obviously bigger and heavier battery life wasn't as good. And that's, that's a lot of putting in your time. It was, um, Panasonic AG450? AG450 or 455 or 460. SVHS. SVHS. Through those three productions, we would have had either a 450, 455, 460. It was the start of the Drury Outdoors team. Mm -hmm. Guys like Stan Potts, Steve Stoltz, Jay and Don, Dinker Whiffler, Jeff Probst. You know, those were the the guys that were there in in the early days. That's yeah. pretty crazy to think about that too. When you look back over the 31 years of, of the company's history, you've seen over time a lot of guys that have then gone on to start their own shows yeah. and have great careers in the outdoor industry. You know, speaking of of Jay and Don and Stan and you know all these guys, Stoltz. You know, you go you go on and on throughout our company's history, and there's a lot of TV shows out there that that 
kind of got their start with us. And it's neat to see. It's kind of like that coaching tree. You always hear of the Belichick coaching sure. tree or whatever. It's kind of like that. You know, it's like a root system and just kind of all continues to grow. It is. And it, it, it was one of the most important parts to us. You know, Terry and I came from Southeast Missouri. So our imprint in terms of what we knew about deer season and deer hunting occurred down there on the 40 acre club. Well, as we started to go down this path within deer videoing, we meet Jay and Don and we pick their brain for everything we could. We meet Stan Potts. We pick his brain for everything we could and vice versa. And we started realizing very early on, the more people we meet, the more we learn about white-tailed deer and how they vary based on terrain, topography. And we learn very quickly those upper mid West deer were a lot different than the ones that we hunted. Mm. And likewise, the deer over in Illinois acted and, and reacted differently than the ones up in northern Missouri and, and southern Iowa. And uh, it, it was a, the start of a learning curve that got very steep over the next few years. And, and we learned a lot from Stan and sure. from, from Jay and Don, things that we still apply to this day. So when you look back, are there any, if you can remember, you know, specifics, or there, is there any hunt that sticks out from those first couple of videos, the monster buck titles or a hunt for you personally or a hunt from Jay or Don or one of these other guys? I, I think it was on Monster Bucks one, but Terry and I were in a tree in Corridan, Iowa, really close to Corridan on a place we had knocked on a door and gotten permission. And we went in, studied topography, boom, hung a, hung a stand up on top of this little knob with this opening in it. And uh, this buck came out and I killed him. And he ended up grossing, I think, 144, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. And I did my reaction. Camera went off. And I looked at Terry and I said, we just shot a booner. And he said, yep, we did. <laughs> <laughs> because it was the biggest thing we'd ever seen. It grossed 144, yeah, but it, it. It, had, it had 14 points, if I recall, some forks and stuff. It was a big, mature deer. But we were convinced we just shot a deer over 170. You're big time. <laughs> we, were, we knew we'd killed a booner. We got to him. We saw him on the ground. We were still convinced he was a booner, you know, but it, it wasn't, you know, and yeah. until you get to those where you actually shoot one, you don't know what one looks like. Yeah. So uh, that was, I remember that, you know, distinctly that we thought we'd shot a booner. We're, I think that often how much it actually takes to get to a 140 inch deer or 150 inch deer. Like I, part of the, I think what, um, kind of makes people dis disillusioned about the television industry or production in general for hunting world is that it, you see big deer all the time. So it's made people think that they're around every corner, but yeah. it's hard to kill them. And it's hard to kill 140 inch deer. Like every time I walk up on a, a deer of that size, cause I've killed a lot of 130 inch deer and sure. 120 inch deer. It's like, Dang, man, this deer is big. Big. <laughs> it's a big deer. They couldn't make him any bigger than this. <laughs> yeah, it's impossible. Right. Which is a great place to be. And I, I think about it, uh, Wade and I, because we both grew up hunting much smaller deer than we see mm -hmm. now. Sure. Every rack buck is a trophy or a, a target until we prove otherwise. And yeah. your heart skips a beat with every rack you see, whether it's coming onto a field or out in the brush. And yeah. Yeah. Wade and I are both the same. Oh, giant. And then, oh, 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 oh two-year-old, 115. <laughs> so, but the, I, I appreciate the fact that I grew up in Bloomsdale, Missouri. And when you saw a two-year-old, you saw a rack buck and it was a rare occurrence. And you yeah. shot him. <laughs> and, and you then. shot him. Absolutely. 
Taylor shot at him, you know, and Wade's the same way. And, and Matt, to your point, like that keeps it exciting because yeah. every rack buck is a, is a special time and a special, special moment. For I'm sure. I'm glad I'm, cause I kind of thought that maybe I was the only one that felt that way. Anytime you see, you see bone out there in the woods coming, you think, oh my gosh, this is it. This, oh, is, man, this is the monster. Awesome. And typically for me, it's not. It's still fun though. Yeah. Even that, I mean, even as you kind of grow as a, as a hunt in your hunting career, mm -hmm. as people like to say, a lot of times that first deer might lead to the second deer. You're excited because you're seeing a rack buck who knows what's behind him, you know? Yeah. So yep. even, even if he's not the largest, you're thinking it's the excitement of what could what's be coming. behind him, what's coming. That's 100%. why you can keep going out. You just, you're excited about what might happen next. A lot of times, nothing. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the the archery nerd in me, one of the things I really love about those older shows is you hear the shot happen and then you can watch the arrow yeah. go out to, to the deer. You can practically count the rotation <laughs> on the arrow. Yeah. I mean, speeds were just totally different, but... But, you, you know, you're still making shots. But, you know, the fletchings were typically a lot bigger and those big fat aluminum Fe arrows. They were feather, and, too, right? No, Back yeah. then, it was all feather fletchings. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure they hear it coming, you know. And that's kind of what I grew up with. And so it's so I'm old enough now to where there's a nostalgia factor to yeah. that, to, to see that. Back then, what, what kind of bows were you guys shooting? Was it high country or was it kind of whatever? I'm trying to think back then. I think it would have been an Oregon bow would have been either a high country in Oregon because yeah. I was on the road selling moss yoke and I, I had high country for a while as a line and we all shot high country mm -hmm. and then I had the Oregon bow line for a little while and I, I think a lot of those were Oregon Oregon bow kills yeah. until we eventually ended up uh, with a weight. Yeah. Yeah. Let us were totally different. I mean you were holding Pile. 70 percent <laughs> uh, let off on those yeah what poundage w would you be shooting back then even usually in the low to mid 60s if yeah. i recall oh so i always shot like 61 to 64 something like that you know because yeah. you're holding a lot to tim's point yeah and, you know back then this is the same period we're out in oklahoma turkey out in every spring well overdraws were a big deal for the 3d guys because they yeah. were trying to get as much speed as they uh -huh. could we didn't shoot them for deer but a lot of the a lot of the guys were the, the speed demons, Jerry Hale and Jeff Steele and those guys out in Oklahoma, they were shooting overdraw, shooting 90 pounds, Stanley Oaks, you know, the same guys I hunt with to this day. Crazy to yeah. see and, what, what they went through and how many pounds they pulled. That's why all their shoulders, shoulders feel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, for those, for those kids that are listening right now an overdraw is something that literally extends your draw length. It kind of puts the, the arrow rest a little farther back and just gives you more inches on your draw so you can get more power out of your draw cycle. It's, it's and it shortens not, your arrow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not a thing anymore, but like my dad's bow, my dad was probably five nine or so and he, i think he was shooting a 32 inch draw wow. length, which is crazy. So so how far back does it go on your I mean, it, it sits behind your normal riser. It just was a, an attachment that oh, came backwards. Gotcha. Kind of the, so you're rest. still resting mm -hmm. at the same yeah, spot oh, yeah. on your face, but mm -hmm. it was something in the front and front that was. Yeah, changing. it kind of brings the riser shelf closer to you. It comes backwards. Gotcha. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. yeah. But just a totally different, totally different world. So back to the, the Monster Buck series and all those original titles, we always get a lot of comments about like Steve Stoltz in those, in those videos. What? I just kind of remember hearing about misses or this or big deer. What what was it about Steve that was so that people gravitated towards? Well, number one, he was on some giant deer. 
Number two, he had a, uh, a history where he would, something would go wrong. The arrow would come off the string. The buck would catch him. Uh, he blamed a few things on the hole in his glove. He had some misses. And uh, he, like all of us, get very excited when a, when a deer yeah. comes in. And he was just getting really excited and not able to close the deal. I remember one, one time, and I don't think we aired this, but he was at full draw and there was a buck crossing a little ditch and he's trying to get him to stop, but he actually released the arrow and then went, man, so <laughs> that tells you where your mind is if you're releasing and then going back. So the arrow's in mid flight. He goes, Matt, the deer takes off. And it was just, it was a That's terrible, funny. we should try and find it. Cause it was hilarious. We watched that and laugh yeah. and laugh so hard and so long, <laughs> you know, that, that was the thing we would do then that we don't do now is review footage oh, and man. watch it over and over and over and, again. And let me tell you something. You didn't want to be reviewing footage with Mark and Terry back in those days because they were pretty pretty critical of the footage. I mean, that's why we have the, I guess, the name we have and the product was perfect, right? To, yeah. the, to the best that they could do. But there were a lot of tough conversations and usually everybody was drinking a beer while they were being had. well we grew up in a construction mentality so you know thank goodness those weren't on film because, you know we were rough on each other but that's the way we grew up yeah you know i mean so yeah so would you write the script based off the yeah. footage you thought you had well we would go out there with a plan oftentimes ahead of the season and try and execute to that plan you okay. know and then then it would fill in itself as it went on so and, it was the, and then the edit was a whole different monster. story i mean they, they, back then you know we're we're in non-linear editing days now so that means you can take a clip and move it anywhere you want to move it and you can kind of play around it's like a it's like a a blank canvas. You can move your clips around wherever sure. you need to move them. Well, back then it was not that way. It was, it was linear. linear. That means that you had to create a edit decision list, an EDL, mm -hmm. and you literally watched the raw footage. You would create time. You would, there was a time code thing that you would display that you would have on mm -hmm. and you'd be writing time codes down of when you wanted to cut from shot to shot. And you'd have to put in one of a 30 frame dissolve, a 60 frame or whatever it might be to get from this clip to the next clip. Well, by the time you went to the edit studio, everything was, you literally had your whole title created written in out. one EDL written out, but you didn't know how it flowed or looked or I mean, this is that that had to have been the hardest part of, was. of those early days. It was. Well, that's why they're so long. If you watch them, I mean, that's the way people edited, but yeah. you couldn't think fast enough the way these guys edit now, you know? And yeah. Jim Howe was the first one that I remember saying, watch Survivor. He was editing for us at the time, and this would have been after this date, but he goes, watch them. They change the scene every two or three seconds, you know? Yeah. And I would never forget him saying that, and it was right, you know? But we were leaving stuff up for 30 seconds, minute and a half. Yeah, it pace is much Very yeah. slow. I mean, I, I have trouble even going back and watching. Well, then- not only that, but you and Terry would write the voiceovers. So you'd have to write all the voiceovers. Now, did that come after you had the first cut? Yeah, we would watch it and go back and write the VOs. Generally at night, we would we would edit all day and then we would go in and write VOs so that we could do it again the next day because we didn't have a studio. We were renting a studio. It was we costly. Were to, it was costly. So yeah, we were editing all day and all night more often than not. I mean, it was incredible how many nights we edited till midnight, one, two o'clock. Oh. I mean, and then you'd have to go and compose the music mm -hmm. to the, the edit. 
So they were, they were hiring composers at that time. We were. Pete Skolka out of Columbia did all of our original soundtracks. Nobody wow. else was doing that at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Those were all original soundtracks. <laughs> and, and I mean, I, I look back to some of that stuff and I, because we would watch it so much, you know, because we used to have watch parties then. Like mm. once it was done, we would. the whole family would come. Like I'm talking Everybody. entire family. And nobody talk. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> shut watch. Up, shut up. And you're watching it on a you know small yeah. TV. I mean, it's just, but those are the fond memories from those early days. I could remember vividly a mom and dad's old house over there in park or whatever, or grandma and Barb and all of them mm-hmm. live and everybody coming over sitting in this little bitty, I mean, the living room wasn't much bigger than our set here. Yep. And, and you got the, all the siblings. So all of Mark and Terry siblings, mm-hmm. their spouses, and then all the kids, grandma and grandpa. And we would sit and watch those watch videos. The movie stars. Yeah. Watch this. 90 minute <laughs> marathon <laughs> of deer hunting and be fascinated by it. But the, the music tracks and those types of things, I remember, I remember that stuff very, very vividly as a, as a young kid. Cause sure. I would have been, I'm probably eight, nine, 10 through those years, roughly nine, 10, somewhere in there. So I remember a lot of that stuff and watching them film the interviews at the 40 acre club and like the, it was just interesting to be behind the scenes and to see it all yeah, take place. Yeah, it's a big production. Yeah. I, I grew up watching Marty Stauffer's Wild America. And those the older DOD videos put me in mind of Marty Stauffer narrating. Terry loved Marty Stauffer as well. I, so I could, that's probably why it puts you in the mind. Terry <laughs> thought he was the Marty Stauffer of Deer Hunters. <laughs> and d- dad, for whatever reason, he loved to flex his vocabulary. Yes. And every voiceover he ever <laughs> written. He's yes. digging deep for $5 words. And oh, then, yeah. oh, yeah. And then Ann Linda, who was a great school teacher at the time, she would. Look for grammatical errors. I remember she that. Would. Oh. Yeah. She would proof a back cover copy, you know, that we were writing. And yeah. It was all a painstaking process. It was the long form with everything. Everything took a long time, but we didn't know any better. I mean, yeah. look at us now. I mean, yeah. we spit stuff out of here. Like, it's oh. just, you know, like that. Sure. You know, these yeah. guys are incredible. So, it's... The- I remember, I think it was probably maybe Whitetail Madness. Was that the one where you guys were starting to kind of a... Diary, so to speak, not a diary, but kind of a journal. Yeah, it was journal. definitely chronological, and it was a journal approach. And <laughs> you guys yeah. have a clip where we're in mom and dad's current home now. This, you know, it's a long time ago too, and he's in his den, and there's like a there's a camera moving. There's a camera moving. We were in a rolling chair, and someone would <laughs> film with the rolling chair, and another guy would wrap them around. But it looked like we had a jib or a slider there. I mean, it was a poor High man. Tech. But if you watch it, it's like, that's pretty well shot. It, back as it was. The carpet. And then there'd be that like 90 frame dissolve. Long, <laughs> slow the, dissolve into the paper with yeah, what's being so written on it. We actually had the paper designed and printed so that we had the right look we wanted. I mean, we were anal about everything. Wow. We wanted the right yeah. look and feel. So it's pretty cool though. That one, that one I think took mm-hmm. us a step forward in terms of our production. Mm-hmm. I think that was. White to Madness 1? One where we killed that 195 over in Illinois. Yeah. So that was uh that was a big deal for us because it was the biggest deer on video ever. And we mm-hmm. we took our production up a notch and that that tape sold a lot of copies, you know. And I remember more behind the scenes stuff. You guys created a, you know, because Terry had a construct has a construction company. So anytime you got guys needed to build something, he 
they built it, you know? And so yep. he, it was a uh, gigantic white sheet, like yep. for sh- t- sunscreen. Yeah. To, to kind of sh- huh. shield the sun from being too harsh, you know, okay. g- give them the right we'd, shadows or whatever. We'd filter the light through that white screen. And that's why if you watch our interviews, they were always really pretty light, huh. you know? Yeah. And, but it was gigantic. It was a big <laughs> one. It was huge. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was a big, massive thing that was behind the house. I yep. remember doing that and. Yeah. Steve coming over, Steve Stoltz, my buddy, Matt, my buddy, Matt. And full circle, Steve hunts with us yeah. again now. He killed Stevie a booner this year. Stevie Wonder. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, you guys certainly put in the time and the effort. We it, did. It, 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 but that's why the tapes took off too, or the, the DVDs, whatever sure. it was, you know, they were always well received. And, you know, back then, and this was the VHS world on the shelf, you know, they were mm-hmm. selling for 50 bucks a piece. You know, that deserves mention, you know, now you, everything's free and online and, and our partners, you know, for, by and large, uh, facilitate the, the money side of yeah. things. But back then it went to the dealer for 50 bucks. It was a rental. Rental. Basically, yeah. they would rent it and rent it and rent it. I don't know. What would a rental be? The cost of a consumer going to rent it? Two or three, five bucks, yeah. whatever it was, you know? Because when we talking about trade shows and running into people, a lot of times when these people come up and say hi to Mark and Terry, it's like, man, I used to wear mm-hmm. the rental shop out, renting, <laughs> you know, Monster Bucks one or right place, right time or whatever it was, you know? Be kind. Please rewind. Uh, yeah. Over that, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Rewind the tape. Don't let it at the end of it. But yeah, the good old days. I'm glad he asked this question. I'm having memories now. You flashbacks. Know. Yeah, flashbacks. <laughs> well, I think back to Jay and Don and all that they brought to the table and Ronnie Smith and Herb Schultz. I mean, yeah. just incredible friendships that were formed back in the day, mm-hmm. but incredible whitetail hunting experience. You know, these yeah. guys were all good and all the hunts were always in the woods. You almost were never on a field edge. Yeah. To me, it, it's... It's encouraging to see some of the smaller bucks that you guys shot back then and were so excited about bucks that I would probably still shoot to this day and just how how you how you put in your time and your hunting has evolved to where you're being more selective about deer but if people saw the deer that you're shooting back in the early 90s they look like deer that that pretty much any you know pretty much most most bow hunters most tame. deer hunters would would shoot yeah I think I think what gets lost a lot today is is a little bit of the history because in fairness to the consumer you know if you were a young guy how would you know what our history is or how yeah. you just always knew you know mark and terry are trying to uh harvest upper end deer or, or manage for upper end deer so they see you know the quote-unquote deer farm you know a, a popular term that gets thrown around but it's not that way it's just that we've you have evolved into that and you've become more and more successful through the years because of the hardships in the early years. So you didn't just start out with a thousand acre farm yet, you know, it was hunting the 40 acre club and ridge running deer. And you know, it's just, you, everything that you have now is through time and through things that you learned through that time. So it's, it is neat. I'm glad he asked that because you can go into deer cast and watch every one of those video titles. Literally, we re- remastered, redigitized all of mm-hmm. those old titles, and they're all inside the DoD TV section inside yeah. DeerCast. So, so especially this time of year, if you're really missing deer season, yeah. if you don't already have a pro or an elite DeerCast account, get one because that'll give you access to all those old full library old school yeah. hunts. Yeah. So, it's a good time. I forget how 119 titles or 120 titles. Something or, like that. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. So it's, there's a lot. And if you're like me, like I go in and I audit, I, I, I can't sit down and watch a, a full show. <laughs> oh, this place, like two hours. <laughs> you yeah, better you, have some time. You really on your have to. Yeah. And, and just kind of re retrain your brain for the pacing of, <laughs> of those titles. Yeah. But man, it's a lot of fun to see the old school hunts. I'd love to hear Terry's thoughts of what he remembers because he, he has a crappy memory, but these types of things he does to yeah, remember, remember this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he'd so. remember all that. He'd remember more than I'm recalling today. He does have a great memory for that type of stuff. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah. And, and any parting shot, one last memory or hunt or anything that stood out before we. One, one thing I always remember, like we used to like split up the stands of who was going to go hang the set, trim the set. And then we had maps on how to get there. And by and large, we all knew where they were. Well, we were over in, in Pike County and we were, we were hunting over there, I believe at the time with, with Heartland Lodge at the time. And Stan was one of our guys. It was me, Terry, Stan, and Steve. And we would rotate who we were filming with. You know, I'd be with Stan for a few days, then Steve for a few days, then Terry for a few days. And I'm with Stanley. And we, in the dark, climb up into the set that Stoltz had hung <laughs> and then trimmed. We got out there and it got light. And Stan Potts was so mad. <laughs> it, he was, face was red. And he was grabbing me. And if Stoltz would have been there, I believe he'd have killed him because... <laughs> You couldn't have shot. You couldn't have oh. weaved an arrow into the ground. There was no trimming. He <laughs> hung it in a tree that was easy to hang uh. in a spot where there was so much undercover. And Stan goes, triple canopy. And he just kept under his breath. He was so mad. And we finally climbed down. And he went marching down the truck. And he went looking for Stoltz, you know, because Stoltz. He goes, this was my day to hunt. <laughs> he knows he has to then film. And Stoltz took that away from him. And boy, when he saw Stevie, he let him have it because of that triple canopy. And it probably triple didn't canopy. bother Steve one bit. No, didn't phase him. <laughs> Not at all. That's the stuff. I love listening to those stories, man. It's so entertaining to think back. But at the time, I'm sure you and Terry got a kick out of that. Oh, yeah. Well, we, you know, we let most things roll off our back, but some yeah. things would irritate us. But uh, Stanley was, he was one you didn't want to take away I from his day in the yeah, tree hunting. I don't think I'd want to stand pots, man. Yeah. Me. So back then, you know, they're flipping back and forth. So everybody, it's, it's, it's a lot different now because a lot of our guys, few teams for Jury Outdoors do it where they flip back and forth anymore. Almost everybody is, you know, got a buddy to film them or, mm -hmm. or whatever. But back then you guys always did. You it was, was all the way. Was it every other hunt, right? Pretty much. Yeah. We'd do a, an evening and then the following morning. So you were hunting every day yeah, yeah. and then we would switch the following evening and then the following morning. Okay. That way you hunted every day. How many, how long would you get guys be hunting mean, meaning duration of like three weeks or four weeks or just We would generally or? start right around Halloween and we'd be done by the 15th, 18th of November, somewhere in there we were done. Like we, we didn't hunt a lot. You know, that's why all the hunts look the same. <laughs> they were all in sure. the timber in the rut because they were filmed at the exact same time every year. And then we started hunting a little bit more earlier in the season and, and later in the season. In the early days, it's probably as much related. It couldn't get off of work that sure. much to didn't have that. the time yeah yeah and even the time that i took cecil wasn't happy with how much time i was taking yeah. you know but we did it <laughs> well i wonder about what time frame you guys started hunting more early and late season then was it early 2000s late 90s 
certainly by the late 90s and early 2000s. We learned a lot of that late season stuff together. And, and Don Kiske was the one that was really pushing that envelope with the size of his food plots kept expanding. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the way we would go in there and hunt during the late season, we learned a lot from, from Don and that stand, from that standpoint. I, I remember the first time he told me, he said, don't even waste your time on anything less than three acres on a bean field. It needs to be four or five or bigger. And that still holds true to this sure. day, you know, in, in terms of having enough food so that it's mm-hmm. still meant something during the late season. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, we just learned a lot back in those days yeah. from Stan and Jay and Herb and Ron and, and, uh, and Don. A lot of best practices we take for granted, right? Because at some point, someone had to think of this. Someone yeah, these were the pioneers this. that were thinking of this stuff. And a lot of people don't even recognize that. I wonder where where was Don? I mean, was it stuff that he he was coming up with on his own? Or oh, did yeah. he have a, a mentor, so to speak? No, this is, Jay and Don were both learning this stuff on their own. They didn't have mm-hmm. mentors. Yeah. No, we were all learning it together. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I learned a lot about food plotting from Don. I learned about the importance of... Time in the stand from Jay and overall persistence. No one would hunt harder and longer in November than Jay Gregory did back then. Nice. Like we'd all be done back <laughs> on the road and he's killing monsters November 20th, 25th, 28th. I mean, giant deer. And I learned that from Jay. He was the most persistent and driven hunter I knew back then. Uh, learned a lot from Stan in terms of trimming sets and <laughs> and how much intrusion you could get by with stan was always the guy that he went into the bedroom scouted it real hard wherever the sign was he'd hang right in the middle of the sign really yeah he was the most aggressive intrusive hunter i've i've ever been around and he, he had some pretty successful 200 inch deer oh yeah he had two days. 200s under his belt at that at that point already when nobody was re- when you nobody know. did yeah. i mean mega giants you know so all those early lessons you know a lot of it still sticks with us today mm-hmm. yeah pretty amazing and it's mm-hmm. all in Deercast. Well, it is all in your That's the cool part. You think about where technology has come. Our brains are in that app, you know? I remember early hunts, early days where the weather channel was on nonstop. Oh, yeah. It was huh. just always the only channel that was on the television in camp was weather channel. Yes. <laughs> all it. day, every day. We'd watch the same forecast over and over and over <laughs> yes. again. Huh. We felt like we knew Heather Tesh, you know, because she was always on there. It's like they don't have they didn't have many people back in the day. And, and uh, she was always on there. And now, you know, people you, you don't think about that, but. It's at your fingertips hour by hour. Super it's amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Whatever you need. When I'm getting there. updates from the weather channel, it's about the rain <laughs> in my area at 926. Yeah. yeah. Three oh. minutes, the rain will yeah. end. And then it'll tell you how much you just got, yeah. right? How much rain you got. Pretty you incredible. It's so awesome. Yeah. yeah. Technology is awesome. Makes us all better. Speaking of Saves awesome, us time. Why don't we do the wildlife word? Okay. Bring it down a notch. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> this week's wildlife word, defensive vomiting. Hmm. Really makes you think, doesn't it? That's a defensive vomiting, I would think, would be if you want to party a few days in a row and you party too much the first night, you have to defensively vomit so you can go again night two. <laughs> be my, learn that be in my, those early days. My, now that liver. we're talking about the old days. <laughs> so this it's close. The use of vomiting to defend against ingested pathogens, so some kind of illness that may, maybe it was in spoiled food or something that an animal ate, or against predators. Vultures are known for vomiting a nasty, foul-smelling substance that's so bad it scares predators away. 
Mm, scared me away. Fun fact, <laughs> I was on my road bike one day coming down a downhill section doing probably 40 plus miles an hour. And I see these black blobs in the road way up ahead of me. And I thought, that's a family of raccoons crossing the road. They get closer and they're not moving. And I'm getting concerned that I'm going to hit these things. I see that there are vultures eating on something in the road. So I start hollering at them and they eventually at the last minute take off and as on one of them's taken off, it ejected, it d- defensively vomited <laughs> as it's flying over me. So I take it on the right side of my helmet. Oh, no. Down my abdomen, hits my leg. I would have loved it. And I'm still that. doing 40 plus miles an hour. So you don't take your hand off the bars to wipe it away. You just finish out the downhill section until <laughs> you get to the bottom where you can start wiping away Who are the, vom- you? the vomit. Uh-huh. Oh. Probably. Probably the worst set of circumstances that could happen in that. And the coronavirus was born. (laughs) (laughs) Patient zero. Here I am. On that note, why don't we shut this thing down? Can't get much better than that. (laughs) That visual. (laughs) We have no giveaways right now. If you wanna, if you wanna send in a question like listener Jim did, go to drewoutdoors.com/slash podcast and hit the send voicemail button and leave your name, location, and short brief question and we'll do our best to answer it. Thank you, Jim. That was a good one. Mm -hmm. It was. Yeah. Appreciate it. All right. Appreciate the trip down memory lane, Jim. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Till next time. Be safe. See ya. Peace out.